Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the first episode of our new series, Meet the Barrister. Um, my name is Alana Hughes. I am the original founder of the Raising the Bar podcast last year whenever I was a student myself studying BPTC at Gray's. I've now been called to the bar. Um, I'm working currently um, between jobs at the moment as a paralegal and working for an NGO as an outreach advocate before commencing pupillage myself this time next year. The idea behind this series, the Meet the Barrister series, is that we get to put um, a face to a name and hear more about individual unique journeys to the bar. And the idea is that we're going to exemplify how no path to the bar is linear and everyone has their own story to tell about the twists and turns that they faced on their journey to becoming a barrister. So I'm here tonight with my guest, Kevin Gordon. Kevin, thank, thank you. you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Kevin is a barrister at Five Pump Court Chambers. Indeed. And Kevin specialises in family law. Kevin, interestingly, you you were a social worker before you were a barrister. I was a social worker prior to coming to the bar, but I, I suppose we can go a little bit further because I'm Jamaican by birth. Um, my first degree was in economics and political science. And that was because I thought I wanted to be a bank manager. I wanted to do a job where I could wear a tie and look respectable. In my first year, I fell in love with political science. I love arguing. I love the research component of that. And so I decided that I was going to do a double major in economics and political science as a result of that. In the penultimate year of university, I then realized that this is not my passion. I didn't want to be a, a economics. I didn't want to be a politician, at least not in Jamaica. And so I started soul searching, reflecting, where do I find myself? And that's when I retrained and started doing social work. So my first job was actually as a probation officer and aftercare um, worker back in Jamaica. I did that for, I believe, two years before I migrated to the United States, where I started doing residential social work. And that journey into social work led me to the United Kingdom, where I started doing social work for a number of local authorities, um, mainly frontline child protection work. And even during those period of time, there was never any indication at all that I wanted to go to the bar, that I wanted to be a barrister. And I, I recall giving evidence or being cross-examined back in Jamaica as a probation officer. And one of my senior officers said, Kevin, why don't you go to the bar? And I said, no, I don't want to be a barrister. I love being a social worker. That's what I want to do. But the, the bar found me, so to speak. It found me at a time when I was thinking about what next. I've been a senior practitioner, I've been a team manager, I've been a consultant social worker. And I was thinking, what next? And pretty much I applied to do behavioral psychology. I thought I wanted to understand why people behave the way they did. Um, that pretty much was it. And then when the, the personal statement, I was to complete the personal statement, I realized that is not exactly what I wanted to do. In a discussion with a friend of mine, because I'm thinking I'm working full time, I would not be able to give up my job in order to, to study law full time, as most people do. And 
in that discussion, she said, why don't you go to Burbank College? I said, what is Burbank College? And she explained to me and said that they do a part-time law degree. That was my light bulb moment. Um, instantly, I applied. I got the application form. I was calling for an interview, and I got accepted. So it was a circuitous kind of route to the bar. I wasn't looking for it, but the bar knew that it needed me, and I answered that call. And I'm, I'm very, very glad that I was able to answer that call and took on that opportunity to come and be a part of this elusive and wonderful profession. What is it that you love most about your job now, that you are finally a barrister? There's a part of me when you think back in terms of your overall development and the things that defined your own emotional reservoir, defined your, developed your, your value system. Uh, I'm from a family of five children, and so I was a middle child and indeed the first boy. So there was pressure on me in one sense to be the strong male within the home environment because my dad was traveling overseas a lot. But also, being the middle child, it's almost like the child who got left out. And I got to shout a little bit louder for my voice to be heard. And so when it comes to issues of injustice, it's something that echoes very, very um, deeply within my consciousness. And so when I see injustice in any way, shape, or form, I feel a need to react. Maybe that was the reason why I entered social work, to work with vulnerable people, to address the, the deficiencies, the inequalities, um, the lack, so to speak. And so having the platform now as a barrister in family law is representing those who cannot speak for themselves, those mentally unwell mothers, um, or whatever it is, fathers, people on drugs, whatever it is. And all of those things, I get a sense of pride when I can stand up and represent their interests, whether it's we win or lose, it's, it's irrelevant. As long as I know and they know that their voice was heard, they had an opportunity to be listened to. That's important for me. It's important when I finish the case and, I'm, and a mother or a client can say, thank you, thank you. That is what makes me do what I do. It's not about the money, it's that job satisfaction. And if money was not an issue, I would still want to be a champion in what I do. Would you agree with the idea <clears throat> that in family law, particularly within children's family law, there are never any winners or losers and there is only the mission to try and make a bad situation just a little bit better? That can be quite a difficult thing to overcome in terms of motivating yourself to get out of bed every morning sometimes. <laughs> when really you're not going to win or lose that day, you're just going to have to try and make a terrible situation just a little bit better for your client? It's a very loaded and complex question. As a family barrister, the child's welfare is a paramount consideration. We all have a duty to ensure that the child, that is, is protected. I represent local authority, I represent parents, or I may represent the child through the children's guardian. We know that matters start, once an application starts, you have 26 weeks in which, hopefully, when it should be completed. And within that 26 weeks, at different hearing, you may make an application. Whether or not that means ultimately a child will return to a parent or not, 
But within those mine applications where you can make an application for a parent to have an assessment done by an independent person, that's a win. But we are realistic about the, 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 the task ahead. Because one of the massive thing about being a family barrister is managing expectation. You understand what the court is going to be looked for. You understand your, your client's case. If it's really, really hard that a child is going to be at risk of harm, I think it's very hard for you to argue a case that that child should be placed with that parent. So you manage your client's expectation. You manage your expectation. You understand the landscape, the legal landscape that you're working within. And on that basis, you, will, you, you find it easier to accept whatever the outcomes are. Some outcomes can be very, very, very fine balance, fine balance. Um, of course, we have appeals process. That's where you go for appeals process. But it's, it's, it's hard to say if a child is removed from one parent and placed with another parent that we've won for that child. It's very hard because we can't see into the future. Within that moment, we can say that it seems more likely that that child would or should have a better life experience in the care of the other parent. Similarly, when a child is removed permanently from a family member and placed with, within the system or with the local authorities, foster care, and later on placed for adoption, can we genuinely say that that was in the child's best interest? It's very, very hard. Each case has to be taken on its, its, its own merits, on its own facts. Within that time, and in terms of what your instructions are, if that is your instruction and you got, you, you got what exactly you were asked to do, you can say it is a win. If you're representing the parent and the child is adopted, do you say you've lost? So it, it's very hard to quantify and qualify what exactly is win and what exactly is, is a loss. We don't have opinion, of course, as barristers. We act on instructions. But from time to time, we do reflect. Was that the right decision? Should it have been differently? But if we dwell on those things, you'd be overburdened, you'd become overwhelmed, and you'd not be able to function in a job that, yes, there's a lot of emotions. You work with people in the most um, difficult of circumstances. When people are in crisis, that's when they come to family barristers. That's when they come to the family court. So it, it's very hard to say, have we won the day for someone? It's different in, 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 in say, um, financial matters, where if you get another one pound, another five pound for your client, that is a win. If you get a matter to be adjourned, if you get a matter to, to be concluded at the interim stage, those are wins. So it all depends on the circumstances, the particular facts, the particular case. Um, but yes, we can't go into family law thinking that you're going to win, you're going to lose. They are, the child hopefully should be the winner in all things. You mentioned briefly uh, the risk of becoming overburdened and overwhelmed with emotion and the fact that every day that you go to work, you are dealing with people who are in th probably the worst situation of their lives so far and, and in crisis. How do you personally switch off? How do you go home and take off the barrister and put in, you know, the personal Kevin and enjoy life? I'm unique in, in, in many ways, having dealt with prisoners um, as a probation officer and having dealt with families from being a social worker. I think you've, I've become slightly comatose, but I also don't want to get to a stage where it doesn't matter. 
I want to still feel those raw human emotion because that connects me to my representation. It connects to my passion and my belief. As a family barrister, we're in court every day. You get a new case even before you finish the old case. And so there's not much time for you to dwell so much on, oh my God, did I do the right thing? Was that the right outcome? Over time, it comes with experience. It comes with engaging and talking to those who have more experience than yourself, more senior than yourself. And you realize that this is something that is common uh, with all of us. And you find ways and means of dealing with it. I think it's, it's good that our new president of the family bar, of, of the family, family court, is now thinking about wellness for, for virus. And I think it's important. And for me personally, I enjoy nature. I enjoy walks. I enjoy cycling. I enjoy socializing with friends. And those are welcome distraction from what can be some gory and mundane issues um, throughout the week. So that is probably how I've managed it. I think over time, it becomes easier uh, to, to manage all of those different and conflicting emotions. It's nice to hear that it will become easier because obviously I'm very, very, very early in my in my career, but just having worked as a family paralegal for the past five, six months, I've already found myself becoming slightly desensitized to some issues. And on my first or second week, the things that I would have been reading about mm -hmm. or the things that I would have been speaking to clients about would have been horrible and it would have taken me hours to get over it. Whereas now it's kind of like, oh, this again or, or that again. And already you have to sort of check yourself and be constantly reminding yourself that, yes, these are issues that you're dealing with every day. However, they're not issues that these people are having to deal with every day. This is a once in a lifetime for them. No, that is certainly true. And I think for me, in some ways, not that we become desensitized, repeated exposure to all of these things. Because I think with each client, what makes family law different, even though you might be dealing with the same applications, interim care orders, care orders, placement orders, and so forth, it's a people, it's those personalities that makes the case. And each time you meet somebody, you're engaging them with their emotions within their own self. But you've learned maturing how to manage what they will bring, your understanding and your experience of the law, the legal uh, um, platform, helps you to be more grounded in managing all of what they're going to bring to you. And I think having the guidance of the law, the guidance of case law, the guidance of from, from the, our president and so forth, those also help you to be more reassured, especially when you're going to give an advice to a client in what is difficult circumstances. Because as long as you are assured in yourself that what I'm saying is right, that helps in some ways, is when it becomes so conflated and confused when you're thinking, wow, where do I go? And you can't find that answer. I think that is a point when I feel a little bit out of my depth. But once I'm quite grounded in terms of my understanding and in terms of managing my client and the expectation, I think it becomes a little bit more easier for me to represent and to put their case and to deal with what comes after. Client care as a barrister is obviously extremely important, particularly within family law. Um, we've got clients who are extremely vulnerable and aspects of care are invoked within family law that may not be within other areas of law. How do you find 
um, the difference between client care as a barrister and a social worker? And do you ever find it difficult to sort of stop at that earlier line that there is as a barrister? Of course, social workers can go much further in the care that they're able to give to people. Yes. Barristers sort of have to stop after, stop where the law ends, kind of. Do you find it easy to, to sort of wear that barrister hat? Or sometimes do you wish you were still a social worker and able to give that extra level? I think it's important to be able to step outside of being a barrister and then become the social worker again, especially when it comes to issues around emotional harm and neglect. When I cross-examine a client or, or, or a witness on those issues, I do so with the kind of basis base that I had as a social worker. What does it mean to be emotionally harmful? Whereas some barristers find it hard to go to that depth that I would go. It's complementary. It's a beautiful compliment, complementary, complement of social and the legal. And I think it is what has allowed me to be the kind of barrister that I am today. I suppose when you deal with professional clients, there's less hand-holding. But when you have a client who's just being told that your child has been removed from your, is going to be removed from your care, and you're rushed to court, and you're in a heightened state. Um, certainly, you've never met this person before, the barrister before. You might have spoken to solicitor, but you don't know who the barrister is. You have to get into that stage of, one, getting that client to calm down. It means we have to become counselors, psychologists. We have to become so much of that client. We're still understanding the legal basis for why we're here, and of course, as I said, it's that which keeps you streamlined. As a social worker, I would want the client to tell me everything because the more information I have, the more I can work with. But as a barrister, I'm looking at the law, I'm looking at the test, I'm thinking what is it that needs to be proven today? How much time does the court have to hear this application? When you talk about 30 minutes, and when there are four other parties involved, how much time am I going to have to make my application? So it's important that I can get as much out of the client within as short time, short time as possible, which means that I have to take more directive role in saying leading the client, asking the relevant question, and sometimes you have to cut the client when they just want to speak. But this is all about managing the client, and that is an important part and a very useful skill in being a family barrister. You mentioned the need to be a counsellor and a psychologist and um, Sarah Langford, a barrister, a family barrister who wrote the book in your defence, mentioned that as well in her book as well. And she talked about how when faced with clients, she felt that she needed to be a barrister, a social worker, a parent, a counsellor, a teacher. All of these different roles were needing to be brought out within her. And would you agree with her that it's those people who can switch on? and all of those different roles and, and be all of those people at once are the best family barristers? Well, if you're not emotionally intelligent as a family barrister, you're going to find it very, very difficult. One, to connect with your client. Two, to engage with the issues. And three, to do proper cross-examination. You may be cross-examining a vulnerable witness. How do you do that? still being sensitive to the issues, understanding that his family is not somebody who's done something. It's not, it's not a, like in a criminal court where somebody's going to be found um, to be sentenced or convicted. 
It's about recognizing where they are, what needs to happen, and how you do it. And so having that sense of intelligence will help you to manage, but also to represent these vulnerable people who enters the family court. I think it's important that anyone who enters the family court must be dealt with in a respectful way. I always worry when I cross-examine a very vulnerable witness as to whether or not, A, I need to go in as hard as I should, two, what is the purpose of my cross-examination, and three, how will my cross-examination impact them later on? I do think about those things. I don't know if others do, but I do. So each time I have, say if I represent a local authority and I have to ex uh, cross-examine a vulnerable mother or father, I agonized about it. I think more carefully about my questions, how I'm going to phrase it. Is this something I really need to ask? Can we agree um, some ground rules? It's because you will hear about ground rules a lot. Can we agree some ground rules in terms of where we need to go? Some matters are so clear-cut that you really don't need to go in for blood. Of course, there's a tendency as an advocate is to go in for everything. It's what we do. We have a story and we want to make we want the court to hear that story and hear it convincingly. So one has to think about a lot of things. One has to be so measured in terms of how you handle yourself as a family practitioner. Can I ask you about your experience of studying whilst also working? Oh, please. So you studied your law degree part-time whilst yes. working at Westminster City Council as a social worker. And then you also studied your BPTC part-time at University of Law whilst continuing to work as a social worker. And my own experience of studying the BPTC leaves me in awe of how you managed to continue to work as a social worker whilst doing that. And I just wondered what advice you would have to students who at the moment who are thinking about embarking on that journey or are in the midst of it and are pulling their hair out. They don't know what to do. Well, I, I know quite a few people say, Kevin, how do you do it? Because there were days when I'm traveling the length and breadth of this country, trying to find a placement for a child, 5 p.m., 10 p.m. in a foster home, trying to settle a child when I should be at my lecture. It was difficult. There was a passion. And you have to learn how to compartmentalize the two. From nine to five, if possible, I was a social worker. From six till 9 p.m., I switched on into a different person. I got a different energy. I was excited to go to my lectures, to go to my seminars. I always, I'm, I'm, one of the way I learn is that I, if I hear, I will remember it. So that has helped me in a lot of way. It was daunting. You have to be so structured. You have to be quite focused. You have to be quite determined. And it therefore means that you have to make a number of sacrifices. For example, if your friend says, can we go out for a drink tonight? I may say, I can't, because I've structured my life in such a way that I would have to either finish some work tonight or on the weekend I do certain things. When you're working full-time, you have to think about when do you do your prep for work, when do you do your prep for school, and when do you have downtime? That was important. Wednesdays was my day when I said I would not do any work. I would just use that night. I'll come home and I'll sit before the TV and do nothing. The weekends 
was, say, the Saturday, I'd probably have my breakfast. And around 12 o'clock until 12 midnight, I would use that as my study time. I'd really study. I shut everybody out. I became very, very selfish. And I think it's important that I had to be selfish during those times. Having people around you who understand the vision, who understand what you're trying to achieve so that they won't use it against you when you said, I can't come, I must study. That was important for me because it means that that pressure, I didn't have too much. Sundays, I still love going to church. I love singing. So going to church on Sunday was important. Come home, I cook my dinner. I love cooking. And then if time allows, I go and do some light study. But it was full on. I think when I finished the BBTC, when I realized that it's all over, I fell on the bed. I didn't want to move. And there were just tears running down from my eyes. I felt exhausted, but I felt relieved. I felt that this journey that many thought was impossible, I've proven them wrong. Already at that stage, I was a winner. And there's something called belief. And one of my kind of strong motto is, if you can believe that all things, if you can believe that all things are possible, if thou canst believe, believe that all things are possible. In my dark days, because there were many, many challenges, one of those challenges being I am an a, a, a older, older person, I'm BME, I'm gay, I didn't study at one of the traditional universities. I was coming in um, at a time when it was very, very difficult. And so I knew that I had all of those pressures. And of course, there were others around me who were thinking, Kevin, you're bonkers to think that you could do social work and then at this stage in your career to go into law. It's not possible. Don't fool yourself. And there were days when I believe those lies. That's what I call it. And it, it's easy for us to allow things to seep into our consciousness and infect us in a way that it shouldn't. And it is important that you understand the brand that you're putting forward, how to manage that brand, but to keep focus on the vision and believe in that vision. In those dark days when I felt it wasn't possible, I remind myself that yes, it is possible, it can be possible and it will be done. Did you have any mentors along the way that were particularly instrumental in guiding you and giving you that boost of encouragement that you needed at times when, when things were tough? To say having one person who was a mentor, it would, would be an understatement. I think you need different people at different stage of the journey. But also, you may need a chorus of people at times to carry you. And I would say times when I feel very weak and I feel very tired physically, emotionally, and otherwise, my friends would be there saying, Kevin, don't worry. You've got this. You can do it. We believe in you. That was important. My uncle, um, he was a QC, um, 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 a grazing, grazing man, Dr. John Roberts, QC was passed on, God rest his soul. He was instrumental in so many ways. One, because he did what I was trying to do. He entered the bar at a later age. 
he was a black man. Um, he was from a different country. And he achieved what I can only dream of. So when I believe that it's not possible, I look at him and see what he did back then. The bar is changing. And each, each year that goes by, it becomes a little bit more accessible. It becomes a little bit more diverse. And because he has fought so gallantly back then, I don't have to fight so bravely. But nonetheless, I still fight, but in a different way. Because he's mapped out a pathway and I can see a glimmer of where I wanted to go. And by me walking that pathway and opening up a little bit more, it means those who are behind me can find it much easier. That's what we want. So he has been instrumental in a in major, major way. But also, I was fortunate to have been taken on the wings of Kalisha um, Scholarship Trust. They mentored me in so many different ways. They have, have honed my craft. They made me believe in myself. I've represented them on so many different occasions. Um, public speaking is an important part of, of being a good advocate. And they have given me some practical skills along the way. Um, lecturers have also been there to be very, very supportive. My parents, my mom would call me every five seconds and say, Kevin, it's okay. No, did you get the good grade? And I'm like, oh, yes, mother, I did. So there are a host of people who were instrumental in this journey and getting me to this place. And I, I certainly owe so much. Grazing. Um, I owe so much to Grazing. I got a scholarship from Grazing, which meant that I was able to fund my BPTC, which is important, but also the support that they've offered me in terms of understanding how to represent my brand, who I am, what it is to translate into a barrister. That's what they did in their own ways. Being a part of miscellany over the years mean that I was hobnobbing with the rich and famous and all of the prominent and well-established um, practitioners of our craft in their own ways. They've guided me and provided me with important and useful tool in how to make myself a better advocate. So I had a host of people who I'm indebted to for what they have done, for barristers who have given up their time to come and do training with us on Saturdays, on the weekend or whatever it is, who would willingly come and offer expert guidance and support, all of those people are instrumental in what I have become today. And I still look back with fondness in the sacrifice that they have made and continue um, to make. And certainly it's a legacy that I wish to carry as well. You alluded to the fact that each of us, as we progress forward in our careers, we open up the path for those who come behind us. And I think whenever I was choosing what in I wanted to be a part of, that was one of the main things that attracted me to Grey's was that um, we've got Lady Hale at the very top um, now and she for me is, is an example of someone who has done it but not only just done it and, and done it for herself but also different. opened all of the doors for everyone else to also go and do it as well. I think Grey's is unique in that sense that the things that make us different and the things that make us unique are not lessened or yeah. silenced here. They're embraced and empowered here and you're told 
to, to shine through your differences and your differences are celebrated. So this inn is definitely somewhere where that sort of person is nurtured and supported that extra mile that, that's needed in order to allow them to flourish. I, I certainly concur. It's a champion for diversity. It's a champion for supporting and empowering and making sure that those who want to get to the bar, who want to get to the bar, are given the tool that they can do so. So I owe a lot of gratitude to Queen and the team for what they do, and they do a stellar job. And I'm not saying that because they will hear it again. But I'm so grateful. I, I, I recall um, an event in which I asked, um, I think it was Rachel, to go through my, 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 my CV just to make sure it was, it was competitive. And when she finished, I went home and I cried. Cried not because of what she did, but because I was grateful that she was able, with her expertise, look at it and say, Kevin, there's so much we can change. How to market myself differently, how to present myself. And can I say it's because of her why I got it? I don't know, but certainly it was persuasive. Because thereafter and now, so I'm, I'm, I'm truly, truly grateful. That little, how and a half or two hours that we spent down in education training room and she advised me in a one-to-one, -one, just us, nobody else. I felt vulnerable, but I felt supported. And that support, especially when you don't come from a family where there are barristers and lawyers, it's not the language that I know and use. But she, with her expertise and having worked in Grays, knows what it means to be a barrister and what she's imparted to me has stayed with me and as certainly it has given me the platform to shoot higher. Lastly Kevin I just wanted to speak to you about pupillage and third six pupillage and I uh, was applying for pupillage this time last year the gateway was just about to open and a mentor had told me to whilst obviously it's, it's important to apply to uh, the, the majority of places that you can in order to maximize your chances of actually obtaining pupillage. It's also important to bear in mind that as much as you are trying to make a chambers believe that you're going to be a fit for them, mm -hmm. you need to try and find a chambers that's going to be a fit for you. And that was something that I really took on board when I was applying for chambers and I made conscious decisions to apply to somewhere, but maybe not to apply somewhere else that I didn't think I was going to be a fit or more so that they weren't going to necessarily be a fit for me. And Having had to do a third six pupillage um, after your, your, your original pupillage, what was your experience of that in terms of finding yourself within a pupillage that didn't ultimately result in a tenancy and then having to get the third six, but then the third six clearly having worked out very well because you're still there as a tenant to this day? The, we can look at these things differently. As a, you've left the university, you've all these things, you want to get here. So you will take anything that comes. So you're not thinking about the fit. Is it the right fit for me? I don't think we have the luxury of choosing at that stage, is this the right chamber for me? I think it's more the chamber looking and say, do you look like somebody who would fit into our chambers? And if it's a yes, 
Hell yes, I will take it. And for those six months, I will be the best people that I could ever be until I'm on my feet. Once you're in the chambers, you start to realize, is this where I want to be? Is what I envisioned how I would feel? So in my first chambers, yes, it's a very good set. And I'm very, very grateful that they've taken me on. Because what it does is give me confidence that I have something that the bar wants. So that, that was a confidence booster in some sense. If you look at the fact that there's pupillage that must lead to tenancy, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. The first is to make sure you pass, you can pass the pupillage stage. At the end of that 12 months, you must be able to say that you satisfactorily completed your 12-month pupillage, which therefore means that you are now a barrister. Once you have that, the windows, the doors are opened. Because when I then applied for my third six, I sent out 10 applications. I just stayed on one night and I just did them and sent them out. I was invited by every one of those chambers. I turned on a few chambers and I got calls saying, Kevin, what are you doing? You're crazy. That stage, I had to think about what is the best fit for me? What is it I want from a chamber? How do I present as a barrister? Would I fit into that chambers? And I was right when I chose um, Five Pump Court. Um, I feel very comfortable with, with Five Pump Court. I get a well with a member of my chambers, with my clerking team. I think I'm well respected. I get good quality work. I'm building my brand. I'm building my practice. And I can't say that the grass is always going to be greener on the other side because it's pretty much the same work. It's family, it's what we do. Unless, of course, you're going to do more high-end private work, which you can do so. But I think at the third stage, it's not something to, to, to be alarmed about. There's so much work out there in family law. We're always looking for um, a third six um, um, barristers. So if you are not taken on at your uh, after pupillage, it is not an indictment against you. It is nothing to say that you're not good enough for these chambers. Sadly, no because other chambers will take you on and you will excel. I've seen it countless times. It, for whatever reason, it just did not work. I had a difficult time, sadly, in my pupillage, but I made sure that I focused on completing the pupillage successfully because I knew I was ready to go somewhere else. And having been called by all of those that I applied to, it shows that I have something that they truly want. And in terms of how I'm practicing now, I think it, 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 it's, it's, it's good. And I think I probably made the right decision. I recall, and not, not to say bragging, I, 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 was before, I just completed a five-day trial um, before a prominent um, um, circuit judge. And as all the barristers left outside, he called me back in and said, Kevin, I had to say this. Your cross-examination and closing submission was of the highest caliber. You can believe that not getting a pupillage, not getting a tenancy is a failure, and you start to doubt your competencies and your beliefs. Don't do it. You will find a chambers where you're comfortable, where you've chosen, and you will grow. You will grow and you'll maximize your potential and your worth will shine through. I think a lot of people will need to hear that because I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about 
the route from pupillage to tenancy that it's not this seamless thing that exactly. just happens and it's certainly not a failure if it doesn't and it's no reflection on you and it the just best means of the best if you listen to some of our high court judges they'll tell you we weren't taken on after pupillage but here we are is it not where you start it's how you end remember it's a process it's a journey Enjoy it, make the most of it. Once you're doing your pupillage, start thinking laterally, start thinking parallel, what if? But at the same time, focus on passing, completing the pupillage and completing it successfully because you need that practicing certificate to say you are now a practicing barrister. And once you're a practicing barrister, family law, if you want to do family law, we have a lot of work out there, sadly, when there's crisis in the country, sadly, it translates into parental care, it translates into relationships and all those different things. It's not the end of the world. Opportunities develop in different ways. Make the most of it. You say it's not where you start, it's where you end. And towards our end of our discussion tonight, my final question, therefore, is, Kevin, where do you see yourself at the end of your career and where do you want it to go from here? It's a very, very good question because I, I still believe that I have a duty to represent the BME. It's who I am. And I still think that we need more BME members to see the bar as a lucrative career, to see the bar as a place that they can find themselves. Um, a friend of mine said to me that he's, he's a, a assistant head teacher in a, in a school and most of the students are from the BME community. And when he says to them that he, his, his friend is black and he's a barrister, they said, no way, it's not possible. So when I think about how I'll, I'll, I'll pressurize the family court is at this point, um, the need for more um, um, judges, the need for more visibility of just not just BME, but also gay issues as well. I think I have a duty in some sense to make that representation and to be that face if I can, so that others can see that it is possible. Would it be nice to sit in the high court, the court of appeal, or the Supreme Court, who knows? I will not place any limitation if the opportunity arrives. And if it finds me, I will answer that call. I believe in a process or purpose-driven life. I believe that I was born for a reason, like all of us. We're not just mass to just take up space. We're here with talents, with gift, to make this world a better place. If it means that, my journey will take me to the highest level, then I'm committed to that journey. If it means that my journey will take me outside of law into something else, then I will answer that call. But I think nature guides us and I'm ready to do what nature demands of me. Kevin, thank you very much for coming to speak with me tonight. It's been a real privilege to listen to you. Um, and I hope that your words of encouragement and empowerment will take hold in people who are listening um, across lots of different areas and disciplines from students right up to, to people on the bench themselves. Hopefully our audience will feel um, as touched 
by as I have by what you've said. So thank you very, very much. No, I, I'm truly grateful. Um, this, is, this is a special moment for me because I feel that part of being a barrister is giving back. And in any small way that I can contribute to the development, the understanding, the diversity of the law, then certainly I want to be a part of that. Thank you for having me. It's truly been amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at Raising the Bar GI.